Let's read Psalm 86. Let's read this passage together. Psalm 86. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Let's read it out loud together. I should have said out loud. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God, O Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me. And thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O God, the proud are risen against me. And the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul. And have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. O turn unto me, and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant, and save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because thou, Lord, hast opened me and comforted me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to come and to assemble here, to lift our voices, to worship you in song, to sit under the preaching of the word and open, Lord, our hearts that we might hear the word and you, Holy Spirit, just minister to us this effect. That be with those, Lord, who are watching on the live stream today. Help them also to sense your presence and and, and uh, as the service continues. And we're just thankful, Lord, that uh, you're God who loves us, that we can say, because we've accepted your son, Jesus Christ, and the precious blood, that you are mine. And we're thankful that your voice called us and drew us to you, recognizing our sin and need of Christ. Thank you for washing us in the precious blood of the Lamb. So bless the service now in a great way. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray all these things. Amen. Let's do this. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter number three again. This is our third. No, I think it's taken us four weeks to get through Colossians three. And of course, we're working our way through the book of Colossians and Jesus first. How to, how to really see our lives enriched and how to see uh, the fullness of our Christian experience by putting Jesus where he belongs in first place. Now, I've got a lot of notes this morning, so I'm going to get right into it, but I couldn't, I couldn't fit the theme verse on the handout. So I would encourage you to take a look at your handout. You should have got one this morning with your bulletin. Um, but we're going to start with our theme verse. Thanks, Gideon. You got it up. Let's read this together. Good and strong. This is our theme verse for our study in Colossians. 
Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Ready? Begin. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Wonderful truths in that passage. And of course, that's been our theme all throughout. So in Colossians 3... We've noticed a progression. So before we get to our text today, I really want you to see the, the progression in chapter 3. So I don't have these on the screen, so I just want you to look at your Bible and look at the breakdown of the chapter. In verse number 1, it says, if ye, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. So he starts out the chapter ex explaining that since our lives have been changed, we have a new identity in Christ. We are new people in Christ. Do you believe that this morning? That we are risen with Christ. That, that everything about us is new. So that's how he starts, and he talks a little bit about that. But then what he does is he takes that, and it's a really amazingly constructed passage, because he starts out with the first uh, four verses talking about how we are just brand new in Jesus. Then in verses 5 through 11... He talks about all the things we should stop doing in our lives, not to make us Christians, but because we are Christians. So in verse, verses 5 through 11, he says, you know, because you have this relationship with Jesus, there are some things that you need to put out of your life. Get rid of them. Then we come to the next section that Aaron preached through last week, verses 12 through 17. And in verses 12 through 17, he says, okay, well, if last time we were talking about the things you need to stop doing, then now I want to tell you about the things that you should start doing. So on the one hand, it's the negatives. These are the things that have no place in a Christian's life. And on the other hand, these are the things that are the positives. These are the things that we should be doing in our Christian life. And it's a, it's a really simple breakdown, a really simple outline of the chapter. And then he comes to this section, which is 18 through actually chapter 4, verse number 1. And what he focuses on now is, again, in light of who we are in Christ, okay, so you follow the, follow the trajectory here, he begins, in light of who you are in Christ, this is what you should stop doing, this is what you should start doing, and then he says, and this is what your families should look like. This is what your families should look like. So this whole section is really about the Christian household. It's about the Christian family. And if we could just have one premise for the whole message, it is this. Families are best when Jesus is first. Marriages are best when Jesus is first. Raising children is best when Jesus is first. And there's an interesting thing here that we'll find at the end. Your job in relation to your home life is mentioned here. That is best when Jesus is first. Now, what you will find throughout the New Testament is that there, there is no shortage of teaching on the family. It's all over. 
Now, every person in here is, in some sense, connected to a family. So I'd encourage you to listen carefully. Now, I've got a lot of material to cover because I want to, and that's intentional, and I put a lot of notes because I think that there's a lot of confusion today, both inside the church and outside the church, of what the family is supposed to look like. Now, we as Christians know and we've experienced in our, in our lives that the, the world has tried to completely redefine what it is to be a family. Do you understand that? It, completely. But I've also found that there are some Christians that have a, a very, you know how the pendulum swings from one side to the other, and sometimes things overcorrect? I've also observed that there are some Christian families without a proper understanding of the family. And so, if you're married in here, please pay special attention. If you'd like to be married in here, please pay special attention. If you have children or grandchildren or you have nieces and nephews, pay close attention. If you're part of this church, we're all helping raise our children together. So pay attention. Ultimately, pay attention because this is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. So I'm going to try to lay a foundation and make some application this morning. And I want to do it carefully. So... In the introduction, I'm going to give you a few statements, and this will take a little bit of time to go through the introduction. So families are the foundation of the church, but also of our culture, and families are the foundation of civilization itself. You will never find a thriving civilization where the family unit breaks down. And that is why we also, as Christians, it is wholly appropriate for us to be involved in cultural issues that the Bible speaks of. Okay? It's not political. It's not a political thing to talk about what the family looks like. Okay? Because the family is the bedrock of society and of human civilization. Now, am I just saying that? No. The scripture teaches that from Genesis chapter 1. So to lay the foundation, would you look with me? I put them on your handout, these verses, and they'll also be on the screen. But I want you to notice some important things. Genesis 1 and verses 27 through 28, what we're looking at here in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, is the creation of man and woman. So Gideon, if you could give me Genesis 1, 27 and 28. The Bible says this, So God created man... In his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he, notice the pronoun change, what is it? Them. Okay? So we, we understand in the passage what he's identifying here is that man, in the, in the first, the first use of man, is that a gender specific use of the word man? No, it's not. You're shaking your head back there? Yeah, it's not. It's referring to, we would say, mankind, or in more politically correct terms now, humankind. That's how, that's what he's speaking of, the concept of humanity. But then, in the image of God created he him. Now, is that a gender-specific one there? It's still not, because it's speaking about, it's using the masculine pronoun to refer to mankind. But then he says this, male and female created he then, them. Do we have some gender specificity now? Absolutely. That there is one, there is one being that is created in the image of God. 
And that one being in the image of God is humanity. It's mankind. You and I, whether male or female, you belong to mankind. And you are special from all of creation because you and I are created in the image of God. But now there's a distinction. He created us separately also in gender and sexuality. Male and female created he them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said unto them. Now this is interesting now. And, I, and, and this is really helpful in understanding this. Them. Who are the them? Male and female. So he's keeping that there. And God blessed them, and God said unto them. So everything God is going to say is not just to Adam, but is also to Eve. It's to both male and female. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. You're like, oh yeah, that's why it's a them there. Yeah, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. And what? And subdue it. And what? Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, hang on before we leave this verse. Okay? This is the mission of mankind. The mission of humanity is to do what to the world? Take this world that I've given you. I'm going to just give you a simple extrapolation from this. God says this. Take this world that I've given you. Take control of it. Take care of it. And make it better. And despite all of, the, all of the terrible things that humans have done, isn't it amazing the power we have over this planet? And that we're creating God's image. There's no animals, there's no animals that have improved the world. But human beings have created cultures and civilizations, and we have even been able to control the very molecular level of this earth. We take control, we subdue it. This is the mission of humanity. Your mission. You're like, what is the mission of human beings? The mission is to go out and to control this world, to have dominion over it, to make it better. Now, specifically, in this passage, who is that given to? Now, some of you are like, wow, you're taking a long time on this. But this is significant to, I believe, correct some errors even within some Christian views. Who is given this mission? I heard you say it. Yeah, both. The man and the woman. Some people have misinterpreted what we're about to teach to say that, well, the men are on the mission, but the women are there to just support the men. And there are, there are very conservative Christians that kind of have that view. But you see, right in creation, who is given the mission to subdue and have dominion over the earth? Both genders, both sexes. Now, we go to verse number, um, where did I say? To chapter 2, and he gives a little more specificity. So chapter 2 and verse number 18. And the Lord God said, now, so you're like, what's the sequence here? Well, the sequence is this, that um, the sequence is such that God says that this is how the world was created, and then chapter 2 is kind of like the close-up. So chapter 1, God created all the world and all the things in it. Chapter 2 is like, well, let's kind of go back and let's zero in and focus on how it happened. Well, in the midst of this creative act of humanity, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be what? Alone. He created Adam. And it's not good that this man is alone. I will make him and what? 
You all said that as one word. Everybody who said it said it as one word. And what did you say? Help me, right? Some people said help me. That word doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a help meet. There is a help. A person who is a what? A help who is what? Meet. Now, the old English is kind of difficult here. There is a helper who is suitable. Who, the, the, the proper way to understand this, and I'm not saying it's translated wrong. I'm saying our modern, we've added a lot to it. We say, well, the woman is the help meet. No. The woman was created as a helper who was just right for the man. That's important. It's not good. I will make him a, a suitable helper for him. And then there's the special creation of the woman. And that is in verse number 21. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his what? Ribs. And he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, from that rib he made what? A woman. And brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The two are of the same essence. They're of the same substance. It's interesting here. Why does God do it this way? I can't tell you for certain, but it is interesting that God has a, a special creation of each individual animal, a special creation of each species. But of the man, the man and the woman are not distinct as species. Are, they are one because from the man comes the woman. They are bone of bone, flesh of flesh, because she was taken from the man. Now, be, now verse 24 we get some practical application now. In verse 24, marriage gets invented. The family gets invented in verse number 24. The creation of the family, the creation of the family is from the inception of creation. The very first institution that has ever been established is not a government, it is not a church. The first institution that was ever established is the family. Therefore, whenever there's a therefore, you should what? See what it's there for. It's linking us back. It's bringing us back. It's because that the woman is taken from the man, that God brings the woman to the man. Because of this, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother. Adam had no father or mother, right? This is now, okay, well, this is how it's going to go from now on. Who put the first marriage together? God did. But who puts the next marriage together? The husband. The husband puts the next marriage together. Now, obviously, God ordained it, but the husband does. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They are united. The two become one. However, who is established from creation as the initiator of the relationship? The man or the woman? It's the man. 
So I'm going to say some things today that would probably be controversial in the world at large. And what I hope you hear me explaining today is this. I would like to present this in a way that you could have this conversation with somebody you work with that doesn't agree with this. I'd like to present this in a way that, that, you, that people would see that the Christian view of the family and marriage is actually a beautiful, beautiful display. It's something wonderful. And it's something that when we walk away from it, we suffer as people. On the other hand, I may say some things that some very, very conservative Christians don't like. Because we saw in this picture, in, right from the beginning, is there equality in marriage between the man and the woman? Yes or no? There is strong equality. Not just a, it's not just a quick passing statement that like, oh yes, we're equal but different. It's like, there's, and even in the New Testament, there's neither male nor female. There's a strong equality for the, the woman. But then at the same time, there is definitely a hierarchy of authority in the home, is there not? It is the man who initiates. Now, because of the fall, I could take you to, I didn't do this, but I could take you to Genesis chapter 3. Because of the fall, sin has brought disharmony into families. I didn't have to tell you that because if you've been a part of a family, you know that there is disharmony in families. Am I right? There's disharmony in marriages. We have people in our church that have been married for over 50 years, two couples in particular, over 50 years marriage. If you ask them, has there ever been disharmony in that marriage? I'm sure they're going to, yeah. We have people in our family that have raised children. Has there ever been disharmony in the raising of your children? Why? Because sin complicates and sin frustrates our efforts. Also, you'll notice if you turn in the, inside your handout this morning, families are under constant attack. Families under constant attack. Both institutionally, the institution of marriage, we know in our culture, in our society has been very much under attack, being redefined, etc. But also, families are under attack individually. So I want you to understand that. That your marriage is under attack. Your raising of your children and that in your family. Children, teenagers especially here, most of the children are downstairs, but teenagers in here. Your, your ability to relate to your parents. It's not just you and your parents. There is an attack there. There's something going on. There's an enemy that's trying to divide the, 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 the adolescent from the mom or the dad. If you're in the formative parts of your adult life, where we've got many young adults in our church, where you're starting relationships and making decisions for your future family, your thought processes are going to be bombarded. You need to have a, a robust biblical understanding of what a family should look like. The scriptures are filled with instruction for guarding and cultivating a thriving Christian family. Now, let's, let's look at this. You see a note here. The note is how the passage transitions. So our passage today is verse 18, but I want you to see verse 17. Look at verse 17. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Whatever you do, in whatever sphere of life you find yourself, do this for the glory of God. So what I want you to see in the time that is left is how families work together to give thanks and glory to the name of Jesus. Families participate together for the lifting up and exalting and the preeminence of the name of Jesus. The mission of your family, the mission of our homes, should be the glory and honor of the Lord. If we'd set that as the, as the baseline, what is this all about? Why am I married? Why am I raising children? Why am I helping my kids with their kids? Why am I doing any of this? It is so that through our families, we exalt and magnify the name of Jesus. So, first of all, in verse number, verses number eight, um, verse numbers 18 through 19, I want you to notice that husbands and wives work together to magnify Christ. Husbands and wives work together to magnify Christ. Read with me verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Wives, submit your own, yourselves unto your own husbands, as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Husbands and wives work together to magnify Christ. How? Well, follow the, the, the notes here. By embracing, not accepting, not tolerating, but husbands and wives, we magnify Christ when we embrace our God-given roles. And what are the two primary roles uh, for the husband and the wife? The, the role of the husband is loving Christ-like leadership, and the role of the, church, of, the, of the wife is Christ-like submission. It's Christ-like submission. You put that together in a home, and you have something beautiful that will honor and glorify Christ. There's no ambiguity here. This is not a confusing topic. And so I have no problem speaking authoritatively on this. You'd say, well, would you be nervous to, in a culture like this to say this? I would only be nervous to say something that the Bible doesn't say. But if the Bible says it clearly, then I want to embrace it. And so for wives or those, those young ladies, when you become a wife someday, one of your roles in the home is to submit yourself to your husband. What does the word submit mean? It literally means to place yourself under his leadership. To place yourself under his leadership. Now, this is why I spent time at the beginning explaining the equality between the husband and the wife. Do you remember what we saw in Genesis? Who was the mission given to? Both of them. Does the wife have a second mission than the husband has? No. But as the family unit comes together, the Bible is clear, there can only be one person who leads the mission for the family. And the one who is to lead the mission for the family is the husband. That's a God-given role. Now, so for the wives, the instruction is, hey, you need to submit. Now, notice something. When you submit to your husband, 
you display Christ-likeness. There's an amazing passage that explains this, and I put it in your notes. It's 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Paul says here this, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. But now look at the last statement. And the head of Christ is who? It's God. Now, if, you are, if you're a student of the word, you understand what we'll call Trinitarian theology, the, the, the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Are they equal? Absolutely. Unequivocally, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in their essence. Who they are is one. But this passage and other passages teach us the willing subordination of the Son. Did you catch that? The willing, voluntary subordination of the Son. So in the Godhead, who, lead, who leads the Godhead? God the Father. God the Father. Does that make them any less equal? No. In fact, if you were to look at Philippians chapter 2, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We don't have time to turn there. But if you were to read Philippians chapter 2, you'd find this, speaking of Jesus, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Full equality, full equality with God. But he humbled himself. In the passage teaches that he humbled himself, he became a man. Jesus willingly subjects himself to the Father so that there is an order, there's an authoritative order in the Godhead. When you, as a, as a wife, submit to your husband, you do the very same thing. Now, there's an important qualifier. If you would go back, please, to uh, uh, Colossians, chapter number, uh, Colossians chapter number 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as is fit in the Lord. This is a principle th throughout the Bible. Is it ever appropriate to go against God's authority structure? Is it ever appropriate to go against God's you think I'm setting you up, but think about it. I'm not. Is it ever appropriate to go against God's authority structure? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. It is sometimes appropriate to go against God's authority structure. In what ways? In ways that would directly dishonor or disobey God. It was not a trick question, but I, I, I understand why you would say no. But it's important because some people, and especially abusive husbands and abusive male authority, have tried to take these verses and, and subjugate women with them. And that's not healthy at all. For instance, I could give you several examples in the scripture of not obeying authority. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. King says bow. They said, well, we'll burn, but we won't bow right? There are other examples. If, if the, uh, in the early church, the, Peter and the other apostles were arrested for preaching, we were arrested for preaching, and the authority said, you need to stop preaching. This is not allowed. Peter said, well, you tell me, is it better to obey God or men? 
There's an appeal to a higher authority. There's an appeal to a higher authority. If, if a, a wife would find herself in a, in a relationship where it is not, where she would submit, but it wouldn't be fitting in the Lord, it wouldn't be appropriate in the Lord, then she should not submit in those situations. For a husband to physically abuse his wife, for a husband to physically abuse his wife would be dishonoring and violating the sanctity of her humanity before God. And so a wife should never remain in an, with a husband that would be abusive. Okay? That would be a complete, a complete and egregious, really blasphemy of what the submission principle is all about. And there are other situations like that. But this is assuming that there is a godly environment and that we're in a Christian home right here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. And then on the other hand is the responsibility of the men, the husband. The husband's responsibility, we're going to get to, uh, to the second part of this first, but I want you to see the first part. Husbands, love your wives. Love them. And all the wives are like, shouldn't that be a no-brainer? But the fact is, husbands do not always love their wives. Husbands like having their wives. Husbands like the benefits they get from having their wives. But do you as a husband love your wife? We won't, you have the reference in here, we won't look at it because we're going to run out of time, but Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, you were to love your wives. How? Does anybody know? As Christ loved the church. A husband who loves his wife is acting for her flourishing. A husband who loves his wife wants to see her grow in all areas. A husband who loves his wife wants to see his wife uh, um, flourish in her health, flourish uh, intellectually, flourish in um, emotionally. Husbands, do we take time? And so many of us guys are, we're just like, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next team, thing. How much time do we take? It says in, also in Ephesians that, that you should love your wives not just as Christ, but you should love your wife as your own body. So husbands, do we take active care to ensure that our wives are just doing well? That's a big responsibility. It's a sacrificial love. Now, are there any wives who perfectly follow the, the, the message to submit to their husbands? <laughs> I heard a chuckle from some women, right? Are there any men who perfectly follow the command to love their wives? No. We need the grace of God, and we need to show grace to each other. We need to show grace to each other. These verses are not intended to be clubs with which dysfunctional spouses beat each other over the head. Right? Like, oh, you won't listen to me. Let me grab my Colossians chapter 3 for you, you know? Wives, submit yourselves. Oh, yeah, well, you won't love me? Let me tell you something, buddy. You're supposed to love me like Christ loved the church. You, you won't even get off the couch for me. These are, not, these are opportunities not to correct our spouse, but opportunities to correct ourselves. 
Anybody ever read, and I highly recommend the book, anybody ever read The Five Love Languages? Who's read that? The Five Love Languages? If you're married or want to get married, read that book. It's really good. And it talks about how different people receive love. Like some people like to get acts of, acts of service done for them. Like they, they love it. Like if, um, like in our marriage, Deborah is an acts of service person. Like if I will do the dishes, like that's like, it means a lot, you know? Also quality time is another one. There's uh, physical touch and words of affirmation. And there's a fifth one, gifts. I am not a gifts person, so I always forget it. Like, I'm like, all right, gifts, but some people, it means a lot if someone will give them a gift, and you want flowers given, or you want somebody to remember your birthday, or something like that. These are all different ways, so I, I recommend the book. But if you've, ever, if you've ever read a book like that, there is a danger in weaponizing the book, and being like, well, these are my, or anybody ever read the book? And if you're, if you're married or thinking about marriage, you should drop in some books here that I would recommend you read. His Needs, Her Needs. Anybody ever read that one? Great book. Love and Respect is another really good book that was written. These are awesome. But they can become self-serving. Like, well, you're supposed to do this for me. You're supposed to do this for me. But that's not the point. That is not the point. Now, here's what I'm going to do this morning. As you see, we're, we're closing in on time, and I haven't covered nearly any of this material. I, I, I kind of thought this was going to happen. So we're going to do this in two weeks. So don't get nervous. I'm actually not even going to get to the parents and children part. We're just going to finish on the husband and wife part. Everybody go ahead and breathe a sigh of relief. And we'll, ah, okay, we're going to get out of here before 1 o'clock today. Now, we'll, we'll wrap up in a few minutes. I can actually feel the relief in the room. That's great. <clears throat> so this principle that there is to be a cooperation where we work together for the same mission. Now, I have a note here. Well, before we get there, I have another comment. If you're taking notes, I want you to talk about this. All the young people in the room, teenagers, young adults, people that are, or people that would like to get married someday, I want you to think about something. I want you to write this word down. You've heard it before. Compatibility. Compatibility. Okay? Now, what I'm about to say is, is personal advice that I think is from the Scripture. Okay? I don't have chapter and verse on this, so I'm just going to share with you some, some things that I think that are helpful in light of this conversation. Everything else, I've been really careful to make sure this is thus saith the Lord. But just some word, just some thoughts on compatibility, especially for the young women. Do not put yourself in a relationship with a man you cannot respect. Okay? My do not put yourself in a relationship with a man you cannot respect. Why? Because it will be very difficult for you to submit to that person. You're like, well, what if I am in a relationship? Well, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But if you have the ability and you are not married... Be very. It is better to remain unmarried than to find yourself with someone you cannot respect, because your husband needs you to respect him. He was created to be respected. Now, does that mean that the? What, am I saying that the guy has to be better than the girl and all the things? No, that's not my point. We all have strengths and weaknesses, but it's very important to be with somebody that you could say, you know what, 
I can respect this person. I would like to willingly submit to them. Okay? And men, young men, now your girlfriend is not your wife. Did everybody catch that? Okay? Your girlfriend is not your wife. Therefore, there are things that you would only do with your wife that you should not do with your girlfriend. Also, your girlfriend does not submit to you, right? Because she is not your wife. However, when you're evaluating your relationship, it's important to say, is this a person that seems like they are willing to follow me? Because if not, then, then, you, need to look, then you may not be compatible. You may need to look for another person to spend your life with. This is just some wisdom. You can take that or leave it for what it's worth. I think it's based on these biblical principles, but again, I don't have chapter and verse on that. But compatibility is an important question. Now, now this is a little difficult. What if there's a man in here that says, you don't understand, my wife just will not submit to me, period. What if there's a wife that would say, ah, I can't submit to my husband, and, or he won't lead? Number one complaint of women in Christian circles that you hear over and over again is my husband won't lead. He won't take the lead. He won't take the lead. So what if, what if men, a man finds himself and his wife just won't obey this biblical? Is there any passage in the Bible that says men... Now, this sounds awful because it's not in the Bible. Men, make sure your wives submit. Is there any passage that says that? Submission is willing. Submission can only be willing. Because there are some ways in my marriage, I know, like, my wife is way more gifted in certain areas, more intelligent in certain areas, and I don't mind saying I am more gifted and more intelligent in other areas. Human beings are different, but we're equal because we're both created in God's image. So there are some ways where, like, it, and of course there's going to be a struggle when the wife knows, like, man, like, I got this better than he does. She has to willingly submit. The husband is never instructed to force his will on his wife. All you can do is pray and love better. Pray more. If you're like, man, I just wish this was present in my marriage, pray more and just do your part more. Just love more. Now, the reverse. Say, but my husband, and I've known a lot of women that say, well, my husband's not even a Christian, or, and the Bible has a whole other topic on that in, in 1 Corinthians. You say, my husband's not even a Christian, or he is a Christian, and he's just not very spiritual, or he doesn't like to make good decisions, and he just delegates stuff to me, and I have to make those decisions. What can I do? Honestly, I think it's more difficult for the wife with a husband who won't lead because it's a, it's a breakdown of the way God intended it to be. But it's the same. All you can do is what God has called you to do. You can't change that person. But you can, you can, you can in the areas where he does lead, you can submit. Or in places where you see he's strong and he doesn't realize he's a leader, you can defer. And you could say, you know, honey, I usually take care of this, but I, I just want, I want you to take care of that. And see if he will. There's things that we can do to encourage each other. 
But we must also realize that when we made our vows, we made vows. The Bible does not support no-fault divorce. If you made a vow, you made a vow before God. And that vow was death until death do us part. That's the vow we made. So the Bible is clear, unless, there is, unless, there is, unless that vow is broken by infidelity, and even then there's room for restoration and forgiveness, the Bible teaches. But unless that vow is broken, you are committed and you are bound to that marriage. And our responsibility as Christians is when our spouses may not fulfill their responsibility the best, our responsibility is to do our part as best that we can and rely on the Holy Spirit to work in that relationship. Now, I did want to make a note. You see the note there. I want to correct some cultural views regarding the husband and wife roles. Okay, I'll take a couple minutes on this. Cultural views on husband and wife roles. You know, don't raise your hand, because we know, just looking around, but how many of you grew up in the 50s and 60s? Okay? There were cultural expectations for husbands and wives in the 50s and 60s. Yes or no? Absolutely. Were some of them good? Were some of them not good? Yeah. There have always been cultural expectations around marriages. It doesn't necessarily make them the Bible's expectations. Let me give you a big one. This is like an elephant in the room kind of one. There are some very conservative Christians who teach that the wife should never work outside of the home. You familiar with that line of thinking? Okay. That was a cultural norm at a certain period of American history. By the way, was that the cultural norm throughout all of American history? No. And in fact, in the scriptures, you actually find a little bit different picture. In the scriptures, you find husband and wife as a productive team. The most classic passage would be Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman. Study that passage. And you'll find a woman who, yes, she took responsibility for her home, which is a biblical principle, but she was involved in commerce. She was involved in the economic well-being of the household. She truly partnered with her husband in, we don't need those, but we're going to, because I don't know which one is, just look at it when you, get, when you get time to look at it, that you'll find in that passage that at times they were a force that worked together. So there is nothing, if, if, if a family decides that it is best for the, the wife and mother to stay home 100% of the time, I applaud that. But if a family decides that they can, before God, they can raise their children effectively and nurture their family, and both the husband and the wife share in the working responsibilities, I applaud that as well. Because the Bible, not culture, but the Bible actually supports both. So we should embrace what the Bible says, not our perceptions. Now, the, the, final, the final point here. So this is husbands and wives working together to magnify Christ. Now, I want you to see this last statement in Colossians 3 and verse number 19 again. Husbands, love your wives and be not 
and be not what? Bitter against them. Now, the language here is a little interesting. Just looking at this as we typically use this English, we would think, we would interpret this, all right, husbands, don't get bitter with your wife. That's not actually, you see how it says bitter how? Bitter how? Against them. This is, can also be translated, don't treat them harshly. Don't treat them bitterly. Don't take harsh actions and harsh words and direct them toward their, your spouse. Now, in ancient cultures where, where men had much more freedom, the women wouldn't have even had an opportunity to do this. wouldn't have been accepted. But in our more egalitarian culture, husbands and wives, I would say this can apply to both of us. Many a wife has spoken and acted bitterly toward her husband, and many a husband has acted bitterly toward their wife. And what happens? Resentments start to build up. And this doesn't matter if you've been married for five months or 50 years. Sometimes the longer people are married, the more that bitterness, the more that resentment is harbored in our lives. Well, that doesn't honor God either. So how do we magnify Christ? We do it by embracing our God-given roles, and then we do it by guarding against bitterness. Avoid harsh actions. Avoid harboring grudges. Is it easy to harbor grudges in marriages? 100%. To always bring up past actions, to never be able to have a fresh start. Well, aren't you glad that Jesus gave you a fresh start? Ladies, it might be time to give your husband a fresh start and say, you know what, I'm just going to forgive the past. I can't change that. I can't go back. We're just going to start this thing all over again. And you know what? We might have been married for 50 years, but now I'm going to consider you my second husband. That can happen. You know, it's amazing. I observe people after 20, 25 years of marriage get divorced. It breaks my heart. Get divorced after all that time. What do they statistically, statistically, do the second marriages work out better than the first marriages? And of course, you'll find exceptions to the rule, but no, they don't. Listen, if you want a new husband, if you want a new wife, why don't the two of you get together and just decide to become new people and start a new marriage altogether? You can do that at any point in your life. Why? Because marriages are a picture of the gospel. They're a picture of the gospel. And in the gospel, when we repent and we come broken and needy to Christ, he restores, he changes us, he makes us a new creation. And in fact, all of this, and in fact, I'll do the same thing next week, but the last scripture I'll give you, it's on the very back bottom of your handout. Whatever you do is in Colossians. Whatever you do, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Give your marriage to God. And how do I understand this? Well, it all starts with the gospel. It all starts with the gospel. When we remember, when we remember what Christ has done for us, we can let that change us. We can let that transform us. And we can dedicate our marriages to the glory of God if we'll focus on the gospel. That I was lost. I was guilty, but Jesus saved me by his grace, 
So I'm going to give this part of my life to him. I'm going to dedicate my marriage isn't primarily about me. My family isn't primarily about me. It's about the glory of God. Do you believe that? It's all for him. So, maybe you're a teenager here and you'd say, my parents' marriage is a mess. Maybe you'd say, I'm a mess. Let's pray. Let's pray that God would strengthen. Let's learn. Let's become who God wants us to be. But it all stems from your personal relationship with Jesus. Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Has there been a time in your life where you gave your life to Christ, where you said, yes, I'm a sinner, and Jesus, I need you to save me? If that's never happened, none of your life will be in order. You've got to give your life to Christ, put your faith in Jesus, and from there, he starts a process of giving us beautiful lives that are for his honor and glory. Please bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heads bowed and eyes closed. That last question, have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? That's the answer to all of it. If you've never received Christ, I'd invite you to do it right now. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the dead so that your sins could be forgiven and you could have eternal life. When you die, it's heaven or hell. Jesus made the way to heaven. So would you ask him to be your Savior? Would you say, pray something like this right now? Pray, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I put my faith in you. Jesus, I give my life to you. Would you do that right now if you've never done that? If you have questions about that, let's talk. Send me a message or speak after the service and say, say I want to know for sure that I'm a true Christian. But now all the, all the husbands and wives in here or those preparing for that stage of your life, why don't you just ask God to do his work of restoration in your life, even if you've got the best marriage. Just say, God, keep us focused on you. Maybe you need help. Maybe you need strength. We're going to have a quiet time of prayer and reflection. I'm going to ask the piano to just play softly as we all spend some time with the Lord. But let's just take the next moments and let's dedicate it to the Lord. I'll, I'll lead us in prayer and then you pray at your seat. Father, thank you so much for how you speak to us. God, thank you for the practical instruction from the word of God. I thank you, Lord, that you have not just saved us, but you've given us a formula. You've given us wisdom for how to structure our lives and our homes. Please lead us, guide us. I pray for anyone here that's struggling right now as they lift their heart to you. Lord, thank you that you hear us. Please move in a, in a real way in these next few minutes as we pray. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire 
is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.